Kia ora Warehouse Fano and welcome to the first podcast for the um, Warehouse 2022. Um, I'm joined here today with Flicky for our first episode um, and we'll be talking a bit about the Conservative Party of the UK um, and a bit of an introduction to how that works um, and through that be talking a bit about uh, British politics in general. Um, so hello Flicky. Hi. <laughs> um, I, if it's not going to be evident in this, uh, neither of us have really done anything like this before. Yeah. So no. this is going to be a bit of a learning curve for both of us, but I guess that's going to be the fun of it. Um, so I guess we should probably just start with a bit of, of how the British Parliament and, and how that all kind of works and yeah. the politics there. So why don't you give us a brief rundown of that? So in many ways, it's similar to New Zealand in we don't have a written constitution either. We're one of those three countries. Um, but basically what we do have an advantage of is a larger parliament so we have more parties that are bigger so our main parties though are the Conservatives, Labour, the Scottish National Party and the Liberal Democrats but we also have parties that do get in parliament like Greens, UKIP so there's quite a diverse range in parliament and um, yeah at the moment there's Obviously, the biggest controversy is surrounding the Conservative Party, pretty much, because they've been in uh, government for pretty much most of my life. We've had a Conservative government, I'd say. Uh, I don't remember a time, I was quite young, probably, when we haven't had a Conservative government. Yeah. So, yeah. That's... Yeah, well, that, that's quite interesting. I, I find that um, a lot of countries are starting to, to wean towards the more left side parties. Um, so, I mean, if uh, you look at the recent Australian election, mm-hmm. and obviously New Zealand has been starting to lean that way a little bit. Um, I, f- I do find it that funny that uh, Britain's a little bit behind on that. Um, what do you What do you think of unwritten constitutions, by the way? I think, like, with, the syst- with systems like New Zealand and systems like Britain, they work. I think examples where they don't work is where you put too much into a written constitution mm. and where you don't go through and go have referendums regularly to update it, like the US. Uh, I feel like, obviously a lot of other countries, like a lot of Scandinavian countries, great constitutions, constant referendums, um, quite direct democracy, works quite well with a written constitution. But I, I think for the countries that don't have them, I think at the moment it works. Like the only thing with New Zealand in comparison to Britain is that uh, having a written constitution would help with like Tiriti or Waitangi. Yeah, yeah, and I mean a lot of people in New Zealand kind of consider that. Yeah, obviously one of the the few documents of our constitution. Mm. Um, but oh yeah, nice, cool. Um, so why don't we talk a bit about then how the how the Tory Party works, a bit about how that all kind of is structured. Yeah, so the Conservative Party is pretty much what it says on the tin. It's right wing conservative. Um, it's not like the same kind of conservative, like it's not quite as conservative as you have in the US. I'd say US politics is significantly more right wing than British politics. Um, yeah, basically the current Conservative Party is made up of a lot of um, old Oxford students. <laughs> so there's a lot, of, a lot of diversity there, you can imagine. Yeah, lots uh, of old white men. Yep, yep, yep. And a lot of them were kind of brought up in the same atmosphere in Oxford, basically. So it's quite cliquey. And I kind of like, I decided recently to read this book called Chums, which is by Simon Cooper, which my mum posted to me very kindly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And basically talks about how incestuous, like the, like the Conservative Party in Oxford was. 
Like I, I wrote down a couple of notes because I'm quite forgetful, but there's like stuff like an example we mentioned in the book of how the Conservative Party works is that basically a lot of the members of the current Conservative Party were a member of this thing called the Oxford Union, which is like a debating society. Mm. Um, but it was dominated a lot by the Conservatives. And it was basically, it helped develop the skills that a lot of the Conservative Party members have in terms of speeches, how they talk. It was just why a lot of them do quite well in conversation and being politicians, basically, because of the Oxford Union. And also why Labour hasn't done as well, because Keir Starmer was at Oxford at the same time as Boris Johnson. But the Labour Party in Oxford were boycotting the Oxford Union. So you can kind of see where the difference is between them because they were getting the same kind of de- debating time, speech time. But yeah, you can kind of start to see why the Conservative Party is so controversial by the fact that at the Ox- during the Oxford Union, there was once a so-called slave auction where Oxford Union members were basically auctioned off. And one of the... Uh, <laughs> what? Yeah, one of the, one of the top... Uh, basically, one of the people who got one of the most bids was Michael Gove, who was fashioning a kilt at the time. I think he got £35 was his highest bid for... That's... <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't know that. That's no, oh yeah. So the so the British never stopped being controversial. Oh no, sense. no, we're, uh, we're very good at that. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and it's kind of like where you start to see this formation of a Boris cult, basically, because he was president at the Oxford Union, um, and it's a lot of this idea of where like this kind of like joking comes from in the Conservative Party, like they bounce off of each other really well, stuff like that. Um, it's this like new be- breed of kind of conservative party members who grew up in a Thatcher Britain. Mm-hmm. So there's already a lot of controversy surrounding that. And then strong opinions with elite people who already have like a high step in the world. Just it's a great combination, really. I mean, well, let's talk a bit about Boris Johnson quickly, because um, I, I, I have heard him. I've seen a few few clips and, and videos about it on on his kind of character during college. Like he was kind of known as a bully, kind of like would it like kind of like a frat boy. I've heard is that yeah, basically. I mean, so basically, the author of this book was at Oxford with these Conservative Party members. It talks about like Theresa May, David Cameron, Boris Johnson. They're all kind of going through Oxford around the same time, and Boris was. He pretty much is as he is today as a politician, full of banter, good at bluffing, um, but got his way by already being a rich white man. Mm. Like he he knew his advantages in terms of his privilege and he used them. And that's evident in the way he carries himself today. Mm. Uh, Yeah, so he was definitely a bit of a bully. He got away with, that was kind of how he manipulated people to like letting him be president of the Oxford Union is he played off of other people's weaknesses a lot. And he does that in the way he conducts himself still. So, yeah. It's a lot of, like, bluffing and charm, which is what Simon Cooper discusses as, like, the big criticism of Oxford and Oxford tutorials, because it's basically you don't do the readings, you show up, you bluff. If you've got charm and you can, like, talk your way out of it, you basically get through tutorials fine. Mm. And in many ways, that's what the Conservative Party does today. Mm. If they can, they can use charm, they can bluff their way out of things. Like, think about... Everything to do with Partygate, and still somehow the Conservative Party isn't that far behind. Yeah. Really. I mean, like, well, let's quickly talk about Partygate now that you've mentioned that. Yeah. Just because I feel like there's a lot we can unpack there. I mean, obviously, it took a while for anything to come out of it. But the Sue Gray report finally came out, mm-hmm. what, like a month or two ago now, um, and kind of started the catalyzing towards his downfall and his yeah. resignation. So why don't you unpack that a little bit as well? 
So, well, basically, Partygate was just a series of illegal parties during lockdown um, held by the Conservative Party. Which is quite ironic because the laws put in place to protect yeah, it was exactly. the ones that Boris and his government put in place. What I think is so interesting about Partygate is the fact that in many ways, I find the British public have excused it to an extent. I think we're good at the British public about caring about something for a short period of time and then somehow we just can't be asked anymore. Mm. Which I think is what I find so interesting about it because it was so big and there was so much about it. Like he had like YouTubers like Jack Mate. Um, I think he collected like about 100 people and they all dressed up as Boris Johnson and protested outside Downing <laughs> Street because of Partygate. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just, I just, that's what really annoys me about the British public sometimes is that we're so easy to forget things. Um, but basically it was just a lot of events. I think there were about over a hundred fines mm. issued at the end, which is ridiculous considering these are people leading our country. Yeah. Um, and it's part of the reason why we have Boris, why we see Boris Johnson resign about a month ago, I think. Now. Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, yeah, what his downfall was kind of evident as soon as that kind of came public, but it did take its time. Like, I feel like in New Zealand, that wouldn't have stand. Oh, no. It, it, would have, it would have resulted in a resignation within a week of that being made public. I would also say with Boris, he's very different to, say, Theresa May, mm. because when his confidence vote came out, I think it was 211 to 148, which is a lesser majority than Theresa May. And Theresa May stood down in many respects sooner with less controversy. Mm. Um, and but what Boris Johnson had was the fact that he was so adamant he wasn't going to step down until we have the resignation of so many of his ministers. Mm. I think that's what I find so interesting about him as a person because he's he gets away with so much, which I just is one of the reasons why I also hate politics to an extent because it's still such a male dominated field. Yeah, like Theresa May wore a pair of shoes once and she got criticised by the media. Boris Johnson has at least seven kids with at least five different women. Mm, and we don't a very young wife now yeah. yeah and like each to their own age is enough anything but a number but mm. even like that kind of if that Theresa May was doing something similar it wouldn't hold yeah up. it wouldn't hold yeah and so I guess you've then got to wonder should Boris Johnson have been scrutinised more most definitely um but then also you know Theresa May probably shouldn't have been scrutinised as much as yeah. she was like if you're going to scrutinise someone like Theresa May as much as as, as they did Realistically, Bojo should have been treated the same. Would you find it a fair assessment that... Because I know for ages, and especially when he first got into government, um, a lot of people were calling him the the English Trump. And I know that now, after January 6th in America, that's a, a very big yeah. comparison. Like, there's one that was just like acting like a child, and then the other was trying to undermine democracy. So I know it's an odd comparison, but would you see him as the British version of Trump? In some respects, yes. This kind of cult of personality mm. that leaders like Trump have. Like, that's what Boris has. He has the same kind of charm and charisma that Trump had. Um, I'd say, in respects, Boris was, like, inherently more of a politician than Trump. I think the American political system means you can be kind of be more of an actor, more of an entertainer, which is what I think Trump has more of. I think definitely Boris plays into his role a lot and he knows how to play into his role, mm. which I think is makes him quite similar. I think I think they, that there's definitely like a lot of reason to compare them. 
I think I haven't done enough analysis on them like together, but I definitely I see why it's a thing. Mm. I see it. Yeah. Also, both have atrocious hair. <laughs> I was about to say, even just some of the, the kind of the ways that you look at them, there, there is kind of a certain vibe there as well. Um, but yeah, now let's talk a bit about the the upcoming uh, Conservative Party yeah. leadership election. Um, and obviously, whoever wins that is going to become the new Prime Minister until the next election. Now, I, I know that some people are calling for when that person comes in to then call a snap election. Mm. Um, so, so why don't we talk about the, the, the leader election first, the leadership election, and kind of talk about how that works within the Conservative Party, because I know it is quite different than how parties work in New Zealand. Yeah, so essentially what happened was after Boris Johnson's resignation, they decided they were going to keep him in as Prime Minister until a new Prime Minister is elected, because uh, I know there was considering like an interim prime minister like Rahm or someone but they've decided to keep him in until September which was when I believe the final election is and basically a bunch of candidates come forward members of the conservative party um who put their names forward to be put up on the list for a possible prime minister and what the conservative party does is then MPs vote and then in a series of different votes they get rid of one candidate until you remain with two candidates and that's it um, and basically the two candidates we have left are Rishi Sunak, who was the former Chancellor, and um, Liz Truss, who was Minister for Trade and then became Foreign Secretary, like, last minute, basically after all the resignations. Um, both of which I'd say are great options for our country, but I don't really know who I'd pick out of the Conservative Party Um as a great option but that's also probably because i'm politically biased yeah so yeah so who, who do you think is going to get in who who, who do you think is more likely to, to get that role i mean it depends on how the conservative party wants to play because i think from my perspective i would not only really rather but i'd probably end up voting for sunak but i know at the moment trust is leading and Truss is like backs like Sajid Javid, the ex-health minister. Like big ministers are backing Truss at the moment. Um, which I think is fair to some extent. I think in terms of her political record, she's done far better. I mean, we look at like the fact that Charles, uh, Rishi Sunak was chant of the exchequer and we now have like the highest inflation rate in 27 years with it like going up to 1.75 just this month from 1.25%. It's like atrocious. And also he's recently been accused of printing more money during the mm. pandemic, which I think we all know is not a classic response. No, I mean, last time that happened, we had Wall Street crash, crash yeah. before that. We had um, the Great Depression, like, printing money is never a good option. Oh, yeah, definitely not. And I think I wrote something down basically about, yeah, so he he's basically just, he's been accused of a lot. And I think in terms of, like, a political career, I just think Truss has more kind of standing mm. to be prime minister which I think is why the direction's going towards her. But in terms of voting, because it's voted for by 160,000 members of the Conservative Party. That's how it's voted for. Um, I just, I can't see why you'd want to vote trust. I guess if you're a Conservative supporter, I can to an extent. But I just her policies are far more... She's not playing it cautiously, basically. Mm. And I think if you're the Conservative Party, who at the moment has a gap of anywhere between 1% and 13%, depending on what poll you're looking at to Labour, I don't know how cautiously you want to play, but 
I'd say playing trust would definitely kind of be taking a bit more of a risk mm. than Sunak. Would you say though, like, with obviously racism, sexism, homophobia, that's all been core throughout, well, decades, centuries. I feel like there has been a sudden rise in it. Do you think having a woman in power again in Britain could be beneficial for that though? As, as a time where we've got all this kind of racist and sexist behaviour coming back up. To be fair, both both options are diverse in their own ways. But do you think having a woman in, in power could be quite good at a time like this? I think yes, to an extent. But I think that's what a lot of us thought with Theresa May. Mm. And what ended up happening with Theresa May is... Um, Although I don't support the Conservative Party, I did have huge respect for Theresa May as a Prime Minister. I th- she came in at a very difficult time, and although she wasn't brilliant, I think her Brexit deal was significantly better. Um, but what I say, it kind of doesn't, it really doesn't help that much, I think. I mean, also, the current female Prime Ministers we have to look at are Thatcher, who I don't think day to day they do with like making the world a better place, really. Mm. Um, or Theresa May, who I don't think really had long enough and long enough an impact. And her focus was on Brexit. Brexit she didn't have yeah. the opportunity to kind of dive elsewhere so much. Um, I think I can see the argument for it, because I think especially now as like last two years since the pandemic um, and so many events have happened internationally, that the argument for finding someone who has possibly a bit more diversity to an extent, although Liz Trust doesn't really, but someone who's a bit more of an outsider candidate to some extent, I think would be beneficial. Mm. But I don't know if she's going to be able to play that card enough because she's not, she claims she's from this quite working class background. Um, and she talks about the fact that she wants to avoid what she grew up in Paisley and Leeds and she wants to avoid what was happening during that time in the eighties and nineties. It was quite deprived the area when during the 80s and 90s it was conservative government yeah which i just always find really ironic about the way she talks but then you also have rishi sunak who says who has claimed i think it was in a documentary in 2001 that he uh, doesn't have any working class friends <laughs> oh yeah i don't know why that's something you'd admit yeah like when you're especially in a political kind of environment you kind of want to make everyone you're you're trying to represent know that you know you're there to represent them and i feel like that's something kind of normal. Well, the Conservative Party's always kind of been, like, not one to represent anyone. Like, the Conservative Party has a membership uh, arrangement where if you have donated more than £250,000 to the Conservative Party, you can be on an advisory board where you get direct access to, like, the Prime Minister and stuff, which obviously is incredibly elitist. Mm. And it's also, quite a lot of the time, it's full with people... Um, big donors who, in some cases, we've big Russian aristocrat donors, which I find also quite interesting. It's, it's just it, there's so many parts of the Conservative Party that just really, if people knew about them enough, I don't know why the party's still going to some yeah. extent. It's just so much like deep controversy. Do you think there's there's a kind of group or? you know, that might might be a party in government or not, that could kind of take over as, as a centre-right party for the British Parliament. And we have the Liberal Democrats, hmm. which are the in-between of Labour and the Conservatives. So when you're someone who kind of 
does quite well financially, but wants to claim you're more liberal and won't vote for the Conservatives, you'll vote for the Lib Dems, essentially. Mm. So, you know, you're not saying, yay, socialism, but you're also not kind of going far right wing in British politics. I'd say there's a possibility, like we've seen it before, Liberal Democrats definitely have a possibility of kind of growing as a party due to the Conservatives' failings. But I think at the moment there's not really enough of an opportunity because the Conservatives have somehow managed to keep themselves going. Like, until they mess up enough, I think they'll be going for a while. Yeah. It's going to take more than what they've done currently. Mm. So, obviously, at the moment, they're, they've got a bad track record and you, and you think they're going to stay around for a while. Obviously, not ideally. Do you think they could, at some point, though, have a good downfall what do you think it'll take to take down the conservative party um well at the beginning of this year i watched like a brief clip that my mum sent me on twitter my mum's quite a anti-conservative party advocate on twitter, on twitter. yes oh, oh yeah f- i make up 25 percent of her four followers and oh, gosh i might have to make five that sounds quite funny <laughs> um she's a private account but she she does frequently comment on um, various tweets and she's very well informed like I cannot deny the fact that she she knows what's going on and she's someone who I would definitely go to to, to have a discussion about it um, because she also coming because she's from New Zealand mm. so she's seen kind of both political systems and I think having that kind of broader knowledge does help her a lot and she's very interesting to talk to about it but she sent me a video at the beginning of this year which discussed Russian influence on the Conservative Party and I think if that continues in the way it does, especially with Russia and Ukraine, I think there's a possibility for that being the downfall of the Conservative mm. Party. But at the moment, we've seen like, I think um, it kind of begins in the early 2000s when Putin's elected in the millennium and links like people like Boris Johnson were kind of the bigger ties. Like Boris Johnson was close friends with... Um, Alexander Lebedev, 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 I think, and his son, and uh, they owned the Evening Standard. So, a lot of the influence of like the Russian politics coming in was coming in through the Evening Standard, which Boris Johnson was also writing for. And you know, when Boris Johnson um, won the election, his first thing that he did was go to a party at their house and not celebrate with his own party. Mm. And, you know, there's been some of the donors, I think I wrote down her name because I'm going to butcher this slightly. I'm really sorry to people who speak German. (laughs) Not German, sorry, Russian. Because um, there's a Lubov... um, I think her original name was Lubov Glubeva, but then she got married. Um, And I'm not sure what her surname is now but she has donated over two million pounds to the conservative party Fire out. yeah shapers i mean we've got problems in, in new zealand with our don donors and donations but that's a bit of another level yeah and she, she's done stuff like i think she paid like one hundred and sixty thousand pounds to play tennis with boris johnson so she paid that to the party yeah just so she it's like like tennis. one of those like auction things, but she paid it to play tennis to Boris Johnson. That's odd. Out of yeah. all the things you could pay to do, to play tennis. Yeah, I. Oh, she also like paid for a dinner with Theresa May 
and a couple of other like um, ministers at the time. Um, and also you kind of see this again with, so in 2017, they had a um, report. They decided to investigate into Russian influence in British politics. And the results of this report were not released until after Boris Johnson won the election. And even then a lot of it was redacted, but it kind of suggested how worrying Russian influence was on British politics. Mm. The idea that it's the Conservative Party is so, in many respects, intertwined with Putin and Putin's... Like, even stuff like Boris was backing um, the invasion of um, troops from Russia to Syria when it was, like... I think that was, like, like 2017 or something. And... Um, no, 2015. And um, Boris Johnson was backing that. Boris Johnson was, I think, calling... It was, like, making enemies your friends and going to, like, the enemy's side, even though he's friends with some of the people who are very close to Putin. Mm. It's mad. Mm. So what do you think the Conservative Party's uh, chances are at the next election? Well, the, the polls are saying that the Labour's ahead, but... Is that a reflection of party gates and his resignation, though? Yeah, I think the only thing that Boris Johnson really had was the fact that Russia-Ukraine happened around the same time as Partygate was coming out. He was able to divert a lot of that tension away. And the fact that Russia and Ukraine is still happening and kind of the Conservative Party have used that tactically, I think has definitely benefited them a lot. Mm. I think I'd like to say that Labour would win, based on recent polls. But Keir Starmer is a leader. He was originally a barrister. He wasn't a politician. Mm. And I think that's quite evident in the way he speaks. And I think it's also quite evident if we come back to like Oxford days, if he wasn't at the Oxford Union where all of these Conservative Party members were debating because he was boycotting it to be part of the Labour Society. And I think the way he speaks and the way he conducts himself, he's just not as quick. Like they had a scenario... um, earlier this year called Beergate, which was similar to Partygate, but it was just one event and it was like after a long day of campaigning, they ordered takeaway and drank beer at like 10 p.m. in the office rather than going home first. Um, And the way he conducted himself out of that made it so much worse for him. He just wasn't able to get the right words out and he kind of takes this approach where he like needs to look at all the facts and go back and reevaluate before he makes a statement rather than just being the politician that needs to come up with something quick and bluffing your way through, which is what Boris had. Mm. So I think there's a possibility for Labour to come in, but I just I don't know if Keir Starmer would be a good enough leader as a politician to beat the Conservatives mm. in that sense. All right. Well, I guess we've concluded there now. We've kind of led up to, okay, well, what's the, the predictions with the, um, the elections? Um, so I did tell you the other day when I was getting you in for today um, that I was going to kind of jump you on a few questions uh, that's related to British politics. Now, I've kind of got three that kind of go hand in hand. Okay. Um, I don't think they're too difficult, but I just think they, they could be some interesting topics to talk about. Um, so the first one is obviously New Zealand changed um, to uh, MMP over first past the post. Um, and that was a big change. We're a Westminster government. Obviously, you know, we, we looked to England on how they work and that's what was implemented in New Zealand. Um, obviously, 
there's a lot of calls now for the Westminster government to kind of be faded out and kind of have our own kind of system. How do you think the MMP system, though, would work in England? Hmm. <laughs> like, do you think it would make many changes? Do you think any of these smaller parties would see a rise in joining government? Um, and what, what kind of influence do you think they would have on that? I mean, parliament? I think we have the advantage of having a larger parliament anyway. Hmm. So I think we have the advantage of it's always easier to get diversity in and also because we have such a large population and it's so different across the areas because there's like some areas which are obviously so dense with population and obviously some that aren't that I think our system currently does benefit smaller parties to some respect I think like slightly more controversial parties like UKIP and stuff are just never going to make it Mm. even if we had an MMP system but we still have the Greens come in quite Mm. a lot Um, I think I think it'd be interesting to try I think I'd just like to see it happen because mm. I think it'd be interesting to see the new parties that would come out of it because I think for so long British politics has been dominated by Labour and Conservative and so much Conservative and I think there could be an option for a party that kind of fits somewhere in between them but isn't like the Liberal Democrats, has better organisation than the Greens and doesn't have Nigel Farage like the UK, yeah. like UKIP. So something more like how we've kind of got national here. Yeah. Kind of more like that. That's not as right wing as the conservatives. Yeah. Um, but obviously, like, we kind of know your, your yeah. kind of political ideals. Like, you're not going to, you're not that national. No. Um, but another kind of party to rise that's obviously a bit less controversial in a lot of those senses. Are, are you kind of thinking of a party kind of in that sense? Because I feel like their Labour is somewhat kind of similar to ours yeah i'd say it is i'd say i think that's kind of the probably one of the more similar parties i think i think i'd like to see it happen because i think a lot of it is i think it benefits here a lot because it's like you're such a small country Mm. that and also your parliament's quite small because of that that it's a lot harder to get diversity in in some respects because there isn't the numbers to play with um well as i think it's not something that's so much needed in the UK because we have the numbers, we have the seats, and we have such differing areas. Mm. Like, even if you go across the South, there is such a wide difference. I mean, one of the biggest debates, which will continue for centuries, is which way do you put the cream and the jam on the scone between mm. Devon and Cornwall, which are next to each other? Mm. Huge debate there. Um, but I think... I don't know. I think... I think it could be really interesting and think in terms of bringing new parties in. I don't know if it would make a huge difference to like the current system. Yeah. I think. Hmm. Right. Well, my next question is, um, so obviously we've got the, the Scottish party within the parliament. Um, but I also know that I believe it is it Scotland or Wales that, that is holding another referendum soon for independence um, from the UK. Uh, one of the t- I, f- I have a funny feeling it's Scotland. I think it might because I think they've had one in the past. Is that right? Yeah, Scotland yeah, so has Scot- had. Yeah, Scotland's and, had a referendum. It wasn't that long ago, I don't think. No, and they're doing another one. So it was them because it was one that had done it yeah, recently. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what do you think of the UK? And do you think Ireland, Wales, and Scotland would be better off being their own independent countries and not relying on on British kind of ideals they can focus on their own things obviously scotland has their their own kind of culture and history they've got their clans um you know ireland's obviously got its own culture i mean it's got its own language um same with welsh um 
and Scottish. Yeah. Yeah, like, like they've all got these like cultures and, and history, but still rely on the UK government for a lot of, of regulation and lawmaking and, and legislature. Um, yeah. So what do you think about well, the UK? So I know so each country has their own government, mm. essentially. But a lot of the legislature does come down to England. I know if I was in those countries, I would consider leaving. Yeah. Um, which is why I found it so weird when Scotland voted to stay, because I was so convinced that they wanted independence. Um, especially also if you look at like the influence of the SNP, the Scottish National Party, because that's one of the biggest parties in Parliament. But had they won that referendum and you know Scotland was independent... I think their influence would be so much vaster um, because they'd be the ones to push for that. Um, so I think if I was one of the members of those countries, I could see why you'd want to do it because obviously Brexit screwed over a lot of those countries because the biggest Brexiteers were in England. Yeah. Scotland was heavily non-Brexit. Um, I could also see for like, I could also see why you wouldn't so much because even like Wales has a different healthcare system already. So while the NHS is falling apart, Wales's system is standing stronger because of the fact that their system is different. So they don't necessarily need to try and pull away. For me, I think Scotland's the most independent in terms of government anyway. So I think I can see Scotland holding a referendum and I can see it going in the way of independence. Yeah. Because they've already got more independence than... Northern Ireland and Wales and they've got the Scottish National Party and I think they could find the right kind of trade links and everything to get maybe back into the EU if they wanted to. I don't know I think the EU is falling apart but I think the UK left too soon as well. So um, I don't know, I don't know if Northern Ireland has enough independence on its own to do it. Wales is an interesting one because Wales is... I view it as the New Zealand of yeah. the UK in many respects. It's there. It does its own thing. It, it's it's England's neighbour, much like yeah. how we're Australia's neighbour. Yeah, yeah. And I think the fact that they have different healthcare systems and things like that does hugely benefit them already. So I don't think they have the need for independence at the moment. Yeah. But Scotland, yeah. definite possibility. Okay. So, so my last kind of question relating to, to British politics, um, and this kind of pulls us back to New Zealand a bit more. Um, at the moment, our head of state is the Queen, um, but there has been a lot of calls lately in a big, um, what's been called a Republican movement in, in New Zealand, with the idea of New Zealand becoming a republic and stepping away from England, kind of adopting our own system, having our own head of state, um, you know, st- maybe still staying a part of the Commonwealth, mm. but, you know, just not having England involved in our politics. What do you think on that? Do you think that we should do it? Or do you think that we should stay with the Queen as our head of state? I think that you should move away from it. Because I think your parliamentary system is similar enough to England's that you don't need us mm. in many respects to kind of continue the same level of stability. I think being tied to the monarchy is possibly part of the reason why, in terms of like Teteriti things haven't got through in the way that they should have and why so many so many treaty agreements are still under so much deliberation because the monarchy is still forever present in government in New Zealand. I think if I had the option to vote, say it was put up to referendum, I would want to get rid of the monarchy in New Zealand. Um, I just... 
I just don't think we're needed. Like, I just, Mm. I think it's linking too much to quite a terrible route that we have here. And I think it's a reminder constantly of um, a past that we shouldn't really want to continue. Colonization. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And I think also the fact that, um, I think the fact that you could probably, I think you could still, New Zealand still needs the UK. New Zealand will always be a second player in the international scene. It's not got a big enough economy and it can't really it can't really do socialism because it doesn't have a big enough economy, but it can't also do capitalism because it doesn't have a big enough econ- economy, truly. So I think it will always need somewhere like I need like a Western player like the UK to be on its side. But I just I don't think it needs the monarchy. Mm. Yeah, I'd say that's a fair call. Um and I guess coming with that, um, one one reason why I've always uh, well why when I when I weigh it up, I always try to be as, as open minded as possible. I weigh up both sides, um, and to be honest with my job, I can't really actually say a, an opinion. Um, but one of the arguments I've always thought of for leaving, uh, for for removing the monarchy, is that in a sense we've got um, the treaty right, which is made with the British monarchy. Mm. So if we remove them as our head of state, in a sense that treaty becomes void. Um, And while it's an essential part of our document now, there are still so many flaws with it, the translations weren't correct, there's a lot of controversy around that. Um, And it would kind of give us a chance to rewrite Māori inclusion back in and almost try to create them as as the kind of dominant ethnicity, um, maybe not on population, but within culture and and the influence on New Zealand politics. and uh, I guess with that, it also brings up the chance to have a written constitution. Mm. Um, and while I'm quite happy with unwritten constitutions, I think they're a lot easier to change and cover up loopholes if one arises. Um, but I do see the benefits of a written constitution. Do you think if the monarchy was removed and titiriti uh, became void, do you think we should adopt a written constitution if it was well written? We're assuming it's well written, <laughs> but do you think we should adopt that? I think it would definitely be an option to consider. I think, I mean, codifying Teteriti, if say the like we abolish, if we abolish the monarchy in New Zealand, I think you, the options for Teteriti are just so much faster. Yeah, and I think ha- using that, I think you you have the ability to codify it in a written constitution significantly more. Mm. Um, I think part of, I think if you, you know, remove the monarchy and kind of made New Zealand a republic, you might not necessarily need the written constitution so much because you're taking away that, like in many ways, the kind of the player that's preventing you from getting further with um, things like Tetariti. So, I don't know. It's mm. it's a very difficult question to ask. Like I think it's I think it's definitely a, a good option if you decide to remove yourself from the UK because it also means that you're not trying to follow that political system quite as much. So mm. quite definitely, yeah, it'd be something to consider. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Awesome. So I mean, 
I feel like we've covered a lot of things. Um, I mean, is there anything else you've had in your little notes that, that you want to discuss? Or I don't think so. Think you've covered everything? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's pretty good. I mean, I to be honest, I didn't know much of that stuff myself, so um, that helped me. And, and it's good to see your insights. Um, I think a lot of these topics, in, including uh, you know uh, the UK and its plan to... Um, into New Zealand and the UK in general, I feel like there is much need for, for discussion to start rising in those areas. Um, so it is good to start seeing what other people think. Yeah, I also think I have, because I find it ironic that considering we are such a huge part of your political system, I know very little about New Zealand history and politics until I came to university mm. here because I only moved here in February. My family still lives in the UK and stuff. Mm. So, um, I found it quite interesting being here and hearing the side that we just never hear. Like, I knew about the influence, but I knew nothing about um, Tetaliti, really. I knew nothing about the um, colonisation, how that whole process worked. So, yeah. I've grown up in New Zealand my whole life, and to be fair, the only kind of history that was mainly touched until I got to high school was the treaty. Mm. And it... It was the same stuff they taught us every year. So, I mean, even in New Zealand, we barely know our own history, and I think that's probably a big problem with it. Um, And I know recently it's been put into the education system. Mm. Um, But there's obviously a lot of problems with with bias being able to happen there and one-sided stories, not being able to tell the right stories um, or the stories that need to be heard. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you coming from England is, you know, you don't know much about our history, but most of us don't even know much about our own history. And that's just, I guess, a flaw of New Zealand. But um, I mean, I did do, I did the history of Aotearoa. Like, that was one of my papers. Yeah. Last try. Um, So I'm in no way an expert, but I now know significantly more than if you asked me in January. Yeah. Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, even I, when I took history in high school, it, we, we barely touched a lot of the stuff we should have. Mm. Um, so growing up in New Zealand and you taking that paper, you probably now know significantly more than I do, which is something sad, I guess, you know, something that, that is, is kind of a downfall of, of many, many years of, of New Zealand politics. Um, but yeah, I think that concludes our little discussion. Um, we will be back next week, hopefully, um, with, I'm assuming Michael... I think Michael's going to be the next one, um, and he's going to be talking on energy markets and uh, and, and sustainable planets. Uh, I think I think it was recently one of his essay topics, so I feel like that quite swayed him to to talk about it. Um, so yeah, um, and if you're wanting, if you already haven't put your name down in interest to come on and talk, and you kind of want to leave your mark to look back on in the years to come, uh, feel free to just reach out to me, and um, you're more than happy to come on. I think we've got about seven people so far. Um, so we've still got room for a few more th- throughout the trimester. So thank you so much, and thank you, Flicky, for thank coming you for having me. Um, it was very good. Uh, so we'll see you guys next week.